Hello, listeners. I'm Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of Berkeley Law, and this is More Just, a podcast about how law schools can play a role in solving society's most difficult problems. On June 30th, the Supreme Court concluded another momentous term. It ended affirmative action by college universities. It struck down President Biden's loan forgiveness program. It recognized the First Amendment right for people to violate state anti-discrimination laws when they're engaged in expressive activity. But it also enforced the Voting Rights Act and rejected the independent state legislature theory. Once more, it was a term that will affect so many people in this country in a profound way. To discuss this term, I'm delighted to be joined by Joan Biskupic. She's covered the Supreme Court for many years and is now Senior Supreme Court Analyst at CNN. She's also the author of many wonderful books on the court and its justices. Her newest book is terrific and was published in April, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Welcome back, Joan, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Erwin. Great to be with you and with our audience. What was your overall take on the term? What themes did you see in it? I have a couple things I will point out. Uh, you know, in part, it's a continuation of where this supermajority was last session. But this time around, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts demonstrated that he truly has his uh, grip back after losing out on the speed of the Dobbs decision last session that reversed Roe v. Wade. As you remember, he did not want the court to move as far and as fast. And that was a huge loss for him, even though he had won in so many other areas last session. This session, uh, he really cleaned up. He achieved his long-held goal of eliminating campus affirmative action, uh, but he hedged on other agenda items that uh, I'm sure we'll discuss uh, that whole the whole field there on racial issues. Uh, the other thing is that he, you know, he even though the court didn't fulfill the really muscular potential that it has right now with the conservative supermajority, it took steps in a direction that likely will be followed through over the years. I do think these justices are, are aware that they're appointed for life. A couple of them have a sense of urgency, notably Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. But I think the other justices, including the chief, are trying to move more incrementally, but still to the right. Uh, you know, obviously continuing the pattern on race, religion, and the contraction of regulatory power. Finally, I just want to addressed the new drama that I was able to see. They're back in the courtroom, not just for oral arguments, but to read their portions of their opinion from the bench. And that includes portions of dissents. And I was fortunate enough to witness all the drama that played out between the left and right side as we had these dueling opinions voiced from the bench with not many people in the courtroom because folks can now get the rulings immediately online. But I felt that what I was able to witness really show the divisions between justices and the dueling views for America. And then finally, I actually do have one last thing that we will elaborate more on when we get to the student loan case. But I was surprised about the Chief Justice's statement about criticism of the court. I thought that was awkwardly phrased, strangely awkwardly phrased for a man who is such a stylist. But he obviously was stung by Justice Kagan's statement in dissent 
that in every respect, the court was exceeding its proper limited role in our nation's governance. And I think his exact words were, disagreement is not disparagement. But I'm not sure that anyone was disparaging the court. So I had your sense it was an unusual way of phrasing that. To what extent at all do you think the context surrounding the court, its low approval ratings, the ethical controversies, played a role in that or anything with regard to the term? I think that the justices' ethics issues, you know, have really overcome a lot of the public coverage of the court. You know, it, it's been, I think, a kid that it's easier for uh, some readers to understand issues of uh, travel on private jets rather than the intricacies of the Administrative Procedures Act, which is the kind of thing that I might be more focused on. And, you know, the consequential impact on America from these rulings themselves. But I think we can't, we can't dismiss the fact that there's been a drumbeat of investigative stories about the justices' off-bench behavior, uh, stories that have gotten the attention of members of Congress who have been holding hearings about the justices' lack of a formal ethics code. And that is something that certainly has gotten to individual justices, if not all of them. And then, you know, part two to this, when you ask about kind of the atmosphere that the court is ruling in, we also had a very inconclusive conclusion in January to the Justice's leak investigation. Uh, last year, uh, what had shrouded the end of the term was the, the leak of the uh, Dobbs abortion ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. And the justices hired people and engaged in a months-long investigation and came up empty-handed. But at the same time that they came up empty-handed, the report by Marshall Gale Curley showed just how lax the justices have been in various security protocols. And they're obviously trying to change things, but certainly it showed a certain amount of sloppiness on the part of justices who are already just so security and secrecy minded, but uh, actually not able to follow through as, as they needed to for that. It's a great point. There were more unanimous cases this term than last 47% of the cases were unanimous compared to 28% a year ago. The 47% seems high, though after the whole last decade, it's averaged about 43% being unanimous a year. So last year was more the outlier. But still, it's notable that almost half the cases were unanimous. Last year, there were 18 6-3 decisions. This term, only 11 6-3 decisions. Should we make much of those statistics? You know, Erwin, I personally am not impressed by such statistics. I think it's good to have them to show, to let our audience know that most of what we focus on are the divided cases, are the cases that seem to have more tensions between both sides and are likelier to affect Americans. But they do agree, uh, as you as you pointed out, agree entirely in many of the cases. But those are the cases that might be easier in some regards and less impactful. And I, the one thing I always stress to people is that all cases are not created equal. We'll even use Dobbs from last year, that 5-4 decision that where the chief was squeezed out. That case you know, has, has no equal right now in terms of what it did. And then let's just take this term. You can easily point to a dozen cases where there wasn't the kind of friction we saw in the Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action cases but which ones will will really change life as it's 
been for decades. So, so that, that would be my only caution. Although I do think it's good to mention those statistics because the justices themselves like to play them up to say, uh, you know, watch what you all focus on. You've alluded to a couple of times the affirmative action cases, and you mentioned just a moment ago the decisions that will really affect people's lives. I think there's no doubt that the ruling in Students for Fair Admission versus the president and fellows of Harvard College is going to affect who gets in and who doesn't get into many schools. Uh, It's estimated that a significant percentage of selective college universities in the country were engaging in some form of affirmative action. In your prior wonderful book, The Chief, you talk about Chief Justice Roberts having an agenda with regard to ending affirmative action. Everyone remembers his famous decision in 2007 in parents involved in community schools We said the way to stop discriminating based on race is stop discrimination based on race. One interesting thing about the case is never does Chief Justice Roberts explicitly say that the earlier decisions, Regents University of California versus Bakke, Grutter versus Bollinger, Fisher versus New Texas Austin are explicitly overruled. Why not? Oh, man. I'm glad you asked about that because I'll I'll tell you what happened to me in the courtroom. You know, I'm, I'm listening to him. He's reading these very robust excerpts from his opinion, which essentially, you know, eviscerated campus affirmative action. There's no, there's no going back. I was so aware of that. And part of my job here was after I heard these readings from the bench, I had to quickly run outside the court building, hop in a waiting car and be driven back to the CNN bureau where I had to immediately go on air and say what I had observed in the courtroom, which was a lot of fun. I, I probably should have caught my breath a little sooner before I went on air. But, you know, I, I, I unspooled what the chief had said, what Justice Thomas had said in his concurring opinion, and then what Justice Sotomayor had said in dissent. And while after I was finished speaking, Another commentator said, yeah, but the chief didn't overturn Grutter and Bakke, you know, which, you know, I hadn't read the opinion yet, so I hadn't seen that he had done that. And I said, that's amazing that he, if he wants to protest that he hasn't overturned those, it's news to his fellow justices because both Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor said from the bench he's overturned these. And the tone in the courtroom from the chief himself was, they are so history. And I think, you know, I don't know why he does that. I, I find it a bit disingenuous because there's no way that those two precedents stand given what he said. Now, there's sometimes, sometimes he will say, well, we were never really following them. And there's a way that he minimized those precedents. He also, frankly, diminished the stature of Brown v. Board of Education in his written opinion and also from the bench. So I, I think maybe he he feels it's important to preserve the notion that the court isn't reversing a precedent from 1978. But but come on, no lower court can abide by Grutter anymore. Yeah, I agree with your word of disingenuous. Not only do all of the other justices see it as overruling Bakke and Grutter and Fisher, but it clearly does. Those cases said that diversity is a compelling interest. Now the court says it's not. Those cases said there should be deference to college and university administrators. Now the court there shouldn't. Those cases said race could be used as a factor in admissions decisions to benefit minorities. And the holding of this case is they can't. And yet he never adds the sentence. And we are overruling those decisions. I wonder if he wanted to avoid giving the media that soundbite 
Is it had a year ago in Dobbs? Perhaps, but uh, he can put whatever gloss he wants on it. I think we just have to cut through that and say, what's left of the 1978 case, Baki? And then I'm glad you even mentioned Fisher, which just, you know, what were we back in 2016 with Anthony Kennedy affirming, you know, both Grutter and Baki. So those are those are out the window. And and the proof is in not just the reaction from his fellow justices who, you know, had a little bit of get real approach, you know, both sides, you know, those further to his right, like Clarence Thomas, and those to his left, like Sonia Sotomayor, certainly said they believe those precedents are gone. But look at what the what we've already heard from college administrators and from from activist groups. Look at what has happened since in terms of schools already, you know, changing their plans. And, you know, one one potential upside for people who have are so invested in what the look of college campuses uh, will be going forward. There's now new scrutiny over legacy admissions that, you know, certainly important. And, you know, I think that we have to see what's going to happen in the workplace because, you know, some businesses are taking this ruling in with a certain sort of message for what they can do. Certainly civil rights groups don't want businesses to change diversity programs, but, you know, this, th- this thing is going to reverberate for many years. 17 attorney generals from conservative states sent letters to Fortune 500 companies, and Senator Cotton from Oklahoma sent letters to companies and to major law firms saying that this changes the law with regard to employment discrimination under Title VII. And it was stunning to me because this opinion says nothing about that. It may portend a change in the future, but it hasn't yet changed that law. One of the things that college universities are focusing a lot on is something that Chief Justice Roberts said at the end of the opinion. Let me quote it for you. Nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. But universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. I mean, it seems he's trying to say, yes, race can be considered in a particular way, but not in another way. And I'm wondering how college universities are going to go about implementing that, let alone how are courts reviewing their decisions going to be able to apply that? Yes, it's a tricky proposition for all involved. And, I, you know, I believe he was responding in part to questions that had come up during oral arguments about what can students put in their essays? You know, there are plenty of students of all color who feel that their individual identity, their racial and ethnic identity has shaped them in some ways that might be important to reflect in an essay. And it seems like that option is still available. But the chief also said uh, in his opinion and from the bench, you know, that that schools shouldn't try to do indirectly what they've been now forbidden to do directly. One other thing I want to mention, and this just goes to the day of the ruling and the kinds of conflicting responses that were immediate. A civil rights lawyer who has been active in this case, who I don't want to name, but who has a stake in, in a lot of the litigation that's continuing, as well as the UNC and Harvard cases as they were playing out, called me. I mean, I, I, maybe he suspected I was on the going on the air, but his message to me immediately was, don't make it sound like all doors are closed because we're going to still try to argue that schools can do certain certain things that will 
be able to account for race in some dimension and that people, you know, academics and uh, administrators and students and families shouldn't be led to believe that it's totally uh, race and ethnicity cannot be considered at all. And I said, fine. I could tell that, you know, everybody was trying to, you know, get their spin on it immediately. But it's, uh, frankly, things are all in the hands of these college administrators and the people who might try to challenge them uh, down the road. I think that's right. One other thing before leaving this case, there's a great deal of discussion, as you alluded to, about what lessons to draw from history. The majority, and especially Justice Thomas, want to say the lesson to be drawn, and just Thomas puts it this way, is that the Constitution requires that the government be colorblind. Justices Sotomayor and Jackson draw very different lessons from history. And I thought especially the exchange between Justice Thomas and Justice Jackson was quite pointed, keeping in mind they're the second and third black justices to ever serve on the Supreme Court. What did you make of all of that discussion? I totally agree. And I think it's worth anyone going back to read those two opinions, which were not the main opinions. Thomas's was obviously a concurrence, and Justice Jackson was the second dissent. Uh, just as a, an aside, Justice Sotomayor, as she was reading portions of her dissent on behalf of the three liberals from the bench, then segued into Justice Jackson's and said that she wanted to let the spectators in the courtroom know what Justice Jackson was saying. But what was interesting to me is exactly what you say. You had these two African-American jurists, uh, Justices Thomas and Jackson, kind of going at it and in very personal ways. I can't remember ever when, frankly, anyone read a parts of his concurrence from the bench, let alone Justice Thomas, who usually doesn't even read a dissent from the bench in, in heated cases. And it was an incredibly personal statement he was making. He referred to himself. He referred to his youth in the Jim Crow South. He really wanted to point up Justice Jackson's notion of kind of the race consciousness of society. And that spurred her. So I thought it was interesting that Justice Jackson, our first African-American woman justice, what she wrote so provoked him. And as I say, I, th I think it's worth a read. And it, both of them putting down markers that I think will continue for probably a decade, at least as long as Justice Thomas serves. I agree. Unlike last term, where I can't identify any major case where the liberal position won, it did in two election cases this year. And I'm interested in what you thought of each of them. One was Allen versus Milligan, came from Alabama. Alabama is a state where the population is 27% black individuals. The Alabama legislature engaged in districting where there's only one district that was majority black. So only one of seven congressional seats was likely to be a black representative. The Supreme Court five to four found this violated the Voting Rights Act. It was Roberts writing, joined by Senator Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Jackson. Thomas and Alito both wrote very strong dissents, which would have dramatically changed the scope of the Voting Rights Act. Were you surprised at the result? What do you make of it? I was surprised. I have obviously traced the chief's views of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act 
dating back to his time in the Ronald Reagan administration when he wanted to diminish the the scope of Section 2. And then, of course, we know what he did in 2013 in Shelby County versus Holder, where when he eviscerated Section 5, you know, the, the preclearance provision for uh, states and localities that had had a history of race discrimination at the polls. So I was anticipating that he would continue where he had been on Section 2. Plus, we should remind people what they did just two years ago in a Section 2 case from Arizona, where they made it very hard to bring these race discrimination cases in uh, voting practices. So I think, you know, when I step back and figure out why I was wrong and suspecting that the chief was going to be consistent on uh, his criticism of Section 2, I would say I think two things, and they both relate to Alabama. Alabama pushed way too hard on this. You know, Alabama on the ground has a lot of problems with race. You know, as you as you mentioned, or when 27 percent of its population is black, yet it only has one of seven congressional districts that are majority black districts. The lower court panel that had said that the uh, state lawmakers had likely violated Section 2 was made up of um, two Trump judges and and then a, a third judge who, you know, all, who all unanimously said that the state was out of line here, that the state had uh, engaged in race discrimination. So, you know, and Alabama was not hedging at all, was pushing very hard on that. Then I, I do have to say that uh, it's hard not to think about what the chief was also doing in Students for Fair Admissions, that it was he was going so far on race consciousness in campus policies that uh, maybe there was some interest on his part to not just beat back a very extreme view of the Alabama lawyers, but also to make sure that in some voting issues that th- there is that they're going to be able to guarantee some racial fairness. I hadn't thought about the interrelationship of the two cases in that way. It's interesting in thinking about Allen versus Milligan to know that since the case came down, the Alabama legislature has engaged in new districting that still keeps only one majority black district. I'm always reluctant to ask for predictions, but I wonder if this will lead to a Cooper versus Aaron moment in the Supreme Court, where the justices all say lower courts, state legislatures, you have to follow Supreme Court decisions. Well, I, I think there's a possibility there because there's a there's a chance that they will see this as some defiance. And what the challengers to Alabama are asking for is not is not huge. It's just saying, you know, better representation, avoid race discrimination. And it's a state that has had so many problems in this regard. Obviously, the Shelby County case from Al- came from Alabama. Alabama has been the scene of the crime, so to speak. And uh, no matter which side of the ideological divide the justices fall on, you know, they've got to be aware of resistance in Alabama. And that is not to belittle Alabama lawmakers' belief that what they're doing is 100% fair. And as the initial filings that have come in from the Department of Justice, they've sort of pointed up what the Supreme Court said and noted, you know, of course, the Supreme Court didn't say you have to, have to, have to create that second district, but you have to take into consideration all these factors that on this go-round, it appears the Alabama legislature has yet again bypassed. So I don't think there's going to be a shift 
in the Supreme Court's view that Alabama has to change things. But, you know, it does raise the question of whether Brett Kavanaugh, who was, you know, looked like a little bit of a shaky fifth vote here, if he would stick with it. Well, he wrote a concurring opinion that raises real questions about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act going forward. He said, times and things have changed, so maybe we should reconsider Section 2, which was, of course, what Chief Justice Roberts said in the Shelby County opinion that you pointed to. So that does give the sense that Kavanaugh was a shaky fifth vote in this case. Yeah, he was He was the fifth. And I think that they've laid down a strong enough marker in the case that came out in June that it will be hard to backtrack. And I don't think they'd want to backtrack. Let me talk about the other election case, Moore versus Harper. I have to say, it was the decision I was most worried about had the Supreme Court embraced the independent state legislature theory. It says that the legislature of the state gets not only the final word, but the only word with regard to drawing congressional districts and maybe even with regard to allocating electors in the electoral college. Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion is an emphatic rejection of the independent state legislature theory. There were a couple of things, though, that were surprising to me. One is that the court decided the case at all. The North Carolina Supreme Court's ideological composition had changed. It went from a four to three Democratic court to a five to two Republican court. And the new version of the court overruled the decision of the earlier North Carolina Supreme Court. And I'm still puzzling over, why didn't that make this case moot? (laughs) It probably did. (laughs) It probably did make it moot. But clearly, a majority had an incentive to decide this case outside of a presidential election year. I thought there was a lot of uh, fancy footwork in deciding to hear this case because I... You know, the Solicitor General said, you know, look, you know, there's you don't have a final ruling before you. You know, I I think there were strong arguments uh, from both sides. But of course, there were arguments from both sides to to resolve it also. And I think that the justices who came together and as you note, you know, it was a ideological cross section. They all had their incentive to get it done. And the reason you feared this case is because it was a very radical position that North Carolina was pushing. Uh, this was a, a view that had been, you know, inspired by some of the Trump lawyers during the 2020 election cycle. It was a view that tracing back to Bush v. Gore and the statement by three of the justices led by Chief Justice William Rehnquist that had no traction for two decades until the, uh, the Trump-Biden election dispute. So it was, and it was also one that I think could have such an impact on state powers to be able to say that state court judges could not have a, could not put a check on state legislatures based on their state constitution was really a radical notion. I hadn't thought about the reason why the Supreme Court might want to decide the case is the issue would come up and resolve it outside of a presidential election and outside of a context that could decide the presidential election. The other thing that was puzzling to me was at the very end of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. I read the opinion as an emphatic rejection of the independent state legislature theory and wrote an op-ed saying this. But then I read op-eds of people I really respect saying, yeah, but look at the end of the opinion. I'll read the language. It says, state courts retain the authority to apply state constitutional restraints when legislatures act on the power conferred upon them by the elections clause. 
but federal courts must not abandon their own duty to exercise judicial review. In interpreting state law in this area, state courts may not so exceed the bounds of ordinary judicial review as to unconstitutionally intrude on the role specifically reserved to state legislatures by Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution. Should we be concerned about that language? I think it will depend on how the Supreme Court itself interprets it down the road. Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, you know, that whole opinion kind of rang with his notion of federal judicial authority, opening with Marbury versus Madison, you know, that, that ending part that you, re- you refer to. I think that that could be a ticket for federal judges and the Supreme Court to ensure it has the the last say on these issues. But I think that overall, the opinion should provide mostly confidence for folks in the election law area, given what it mostly did in terms of rejecting the radical independent state legislature theory. Maybe that that statement at the end uh, was the price of compromise uh, between the left and the right or the chief and all others, because it was a very chief like thing to write. But I think it's it's hard to know how it will play out until we see just, you know, you know, whether some state judges might go rogue, which was kind of something that came up during oral arguments. The narrow way of reading it is if a state court is violating the Constitution, of course, federal courts can step in. And that's how I'd like to read it. Other commentators say it's much broader than that in terms of what does it mean that state courts may not so exceed the bounds of ordinary judicial review. But I agree with you. We have to wait and see. I want to talk about the two cases from the last day of the term. They were both dramatic conservative victories. I think both are going to have huge implications for the future. Let me start with the student loan case, Biden versus Nebraska. This, of course, involves a federal statute, the HEROES Act, that says that the Secretary of Education can, quote, waive or modify student loan obligations in an emergency. President Trump used this authority early in the pandemic to suspend the need to repay certain student loans. President Biden continued it, and they made it permanent. In fact, about 43 million people They were getting up to $20,000 in student loan relief. And the Supreme Court, in a six to three decision, said that the president lacked the authority because this is a major question of economic and political significance and Congress hadn't given sufficient guidance. What do you make of the case? Well, I would start with the threshold question about legal standing, which Fortunately, the kinds of people who listen to your podcast are when will know what we're talking about, even though that's not the, the sexiest, most exciting part of this decision. But it is the threshold question that the justices must address. Did these state attorneys general, uh, did they have grounds to even bring the, these cases? And there was a pretty good argument that there was no real injury here. And it seemed like, you know, the, during oral arguments uh, in this case, and then when we saw the opinion, that this sixth justice majority definitely wanted to get to the core question and brushed aside concerns about whether uh, there was legal standing here. And I thought that, you know, once they did that, there was no turning back and that they, you know, this this opinion had a lot of the same themes as the West Virginia versus EPA opinion of last year, where the justices wanted to restrict 
the you know executive branch federal regulators in an area that you know in the past would have been left to people who's you know who are experts in the field who know some things and who in the past congress has allowed to you know have some breathing room with statutes you know th- that it goes to just how specific is congress going to be in these areas and uh you know if you if you know the legislative process which you know one of the people who know, knew the legislative process best is now gone and that's Stephen Breyer but it, you know for justices who understand the legislative process they realize that congress is never going to be able to be super specific in legislation here that was the point of justice kagan's i think scathing dissent she says one of those basic principles of interpretation is that when statutory language is clear it has to be followed the statute says the Secretary of Education can, quote, waive student loan obligations. Kagan says, how much more specific can Congress be than that? Yet Chief Justice Roberts says, waive has never been taken to be as broad as President Biden and the Secretary of Education have interpreted. I also think this focus on the major questions doctrine is so crucial going forward. I doubt most law professors or federal judges even heard of the major questions doctrine until a few years ago. And now, as you point out, there was West Virginia versus EPA a year ago, and now Biden versus Nebraska. Do you see this as part of a larger theme of the Supreme Court and its relationship to the administrative state? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, the three appointees of Donald Trump were chosen in part because of their views on the so-called administrative state. Uh, White House counsel Don McGahn made that very clear. We tend to, you know, rightly focus on a lot of the social policy questions like abortion and religious liberties. But, you know, this is the area of uh, that's very important to business and obviously important to, to regulators at all levels is just how much authority, you know, the federal bureaucracy can have in American life. And, you know, you point out that uh, Justice Kagan dissented in both the uh, environmental case of last year and the student loan case of this year. And there was there were a couple lines that she used that I, I thought reinforced the notion that this major questions doctrine is in some ways contrived in this in these times. And this heightened requirement for specificity is something that had not been required before. And she said last year, she wrote, the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, but there was a similar line in the student loan case of, you know, what's what's the court doing delving into something that the Department of Education is trying to solve here? I had the chance this spring to speak at a conference of individuals are going to be clerking for federal courts all over the country. And I said to them, three of the most important words you need to know are major questions doctrine, because the Supreme Court still hasn't told us what's a major question of economic or political significance. The court hasn't told us what's sufficient congressional guidance to meet the major questions doctrine. So it's just opened the door to challenges to every kind of administrative regulation. And though we're focusing on last term, the court's taken for cert for next term case Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo of whether to overrule the Chevron doctrine. The Chevron doctrine is the idea that when a federal agency is interpreting a statute that governs it, there should be deference to it. This all seems to me to be exactly what you're talking about, 
a court that really wants to change the very nature of the administrative state? Oh, I think we've seen it repeatedly. And, you know, we saw it during uh, some of the COVID measures, too. Various requirements, uh, you know, there were a lot of disputes over masks and vaccinations and, and all sorts of requirements on whether they protected public safety or were meddling too much with uh, affairs usually left to the state. You know, those played out in religion cases, but they also played out very much so on the power of federal regulations. It's a great point. The other case that came down June 30th was 303 Creative versus Alenis. I think everybody's familiar with it. Colorado has a law that prohibits business establishments from discriminating based on race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. Lori Smith's business designing websites. She wants to expand it to design websites for weddings, but says she doesn't want to design websites for same-sex weddings because of religious beliefs. The Supreme Court reversing the lower court's rules in favor of Lori Smith does so on free speech grounds, not focusing on the religion question, which it didn't take. And Justice Gorsuch writes for the court and says it would be impermissible compelled speech to force her to design websites that she doesn't want to do. How far does this case reach? There's a narrow way of reading it to say, well, the court really focused on all the stipulations that Colorado had made. But then there's a broader way of reading it that says anyone who's engaged in expressive activity doesn't have to provide service when they don't want to because it'd be compelled speech. How do you read it? Well, two things. First of all, we know what kind of path the justices have been on regarding challenges by religious conservatives to government policies and, you know, in a range of areas. This case took further the Masterpiece Cake case uh, back in 2018, also from Colorado, uh, to, with, for a more definitive ruling. But it's also part of a piece. And you add to last year's two rulings, one favoring the, uh, the coach who wanted to pray on the 50-yard line after a, a public high school football game, and the religious funding case from Maine that said that uh, if Maine was going to give certain funding to public high schools, also had to, you know, go to religious schools too. The public financing cases, the prayer and public forum cases, that division between protecting certain classifications, you know, based on race, sex, uh, sexual orientation versus religious liberties. And I know you're rightly saying it's it's free speech, but it was brought by a woman who said that it was her Christian views that would stop her from wanting to create a website for same-sex couples. So I would say that this, this case is, has to be seen in that larger pattern. That said, Justice Gorsuch from the bench that day just stressed all the stipulations that Colorado had made. And Maybe, maybe it will be narrow going forward, but this court has been on a certain path. And one thing I was very struck by as the justices read their dueling opinions, Justice Gorsuch from the majority, seeing the entire case through the eyes of someone who, as he portrayed it, would be forced to, was not even be forced yet, she was worried. Remember, this was a pre-enforcement challenge to this law. We're not even sure what Lori Smith of 303 Creative really was going to do or exactly what the state was going to enforce. But she said she was worried about any kind of liability under the state public accommodations law. So he saw the case entirely through 
her position as a Christian who wanted to be able to protect her creative expression. Justice Sotomayor saw it, you know, as part of a line of cases that we know from the 60s where public accommodations laws were flouted to her blacks and other racial minorities by business people who just didn't want to serve them. And she said, this is the first time that a public accommodations law can't be enforced based on a protected class. So this is definitely in that category of to be continued. And there is a chance that maybe this this case will not end up being a strong precedent for related ones. But I think that already we've seen challenges um, out in the states based on this. And we know that this court majority does think that religious conservatives are you know, under siege and need more protections. Though it would seem it's not just limited to religious beliefs because of the court's focus on somebody can't be forced to engage in speech they don't want to. And it's not just limited to sexual orientation. What if Lori Smith said, I believe interracial marriage is wrong and therefore I don't want to serve an interracial couple. I don't know how the court's going to cabin this based on the stipulations, given the breadth of the language in Justice Gorsuch's opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Even though he stressed all the stipulations, it's still a very broadly written opinion. One other case comes to mind that fits with the pattern that you point to there are the Supreme Court religion. And it was a case that didn't get much media attention because it came down on June 29th, the same day as the affirmative action cases. But it sure supports the theme you were looking at. It's a case called Graf versus DeJoy about when do employers have to provide accommodations for employees' religious beliefs and practices. In 1977, the Supreme Court said, employers don't have to do more than would be a minimal burden. I mean, more than a minimal burden, the employer doesn't have to do it. And now Justice Alito, for unanimous court, says employers have to provide the accommodation unless it would be a substantial cost to them. That's a huge change in the law. Yeah. And as you said, it was unanimous. So, you know, there there's a chance that maybe the more liberal members are hoping that it's not taken as far as it could be, or they might have just thought, look, we're not at least the court was an outright reversing precedent, but it's hard to know what kinds of concessions are won behind the scenes when we see a final product that's unanimous like that. It's a great way to end the conversation. You have the advantage that you're there in the courtroom. Do you have any observations about the relationships among the justices from being there or the internal dynamics of the court that come through just from being in the courtroom? Oh, yes. You get to see how they respond to each other. You can see people rolling their eyes, people <laughs> people listening intently. Um, I have to say, speaking more broadly about all nine of them, they are desperately trying to get along. They are trying to close, they close ranks against outsiders, like, you know, academic critics or journalists, but they have a lot of internal tensions. And I think that they're born out in the, the cases we highlighted today. And also, they're born out in their struggles over how they're going to respond to these ethics controversies, which are foremost in the minds of members of Congress. And now, you know, I would say, of course, it's Democrats who are leading the charge. But, you know, we live in a polarized world and that's just the way it's going to be for now. But also they're members of the public who 
who in poll after poll are voicing decreasing public approval of the Supreme Court. And I think that's something that concerns the chief and some of the other justices. So if they would like to present a more united front, but they're they're using the summer to cool off, I'd say. Thank you, Joan, so much for this wonderful conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of More Just. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please send an email to morejust, M-O-R-E-J-U-S-T, at berkeley, B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y, dot E-D-U, to tell us your thoughts. Until next time, I'm Berkeley Law Dean, Erwin Chemerinsky. <laughs>